Well, we're returning uh, to Mark's uh, gospel, and a recap is in order. We last left off with Jesus having taken his disciples uh, to Caesarea Philippi, and there he asked them, uh, who do people say that I am, and then who do you say that I am? And it's there that Peter makes the confession that you are the Christ, and not A minute later, Jesus begins to teach them that he must be rejected and suffer and die and then be resurrected. And Peter immediately rebukes Jesus, and Jesus in turn rebukes uh, Peter. (laughs) And uh, and we pick up there in chapter uh, 9, right after those events. So if you would, would you stand? We're going to read verses 2 through 13 of chapter 9. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the gift of this gospel. And Lord, uh, may it be a gift to us this morning. Give us all the help we need to listen uh, well. And may your spirit uh, illumine Uh, the scriptures in such a way that we'll understand its significance for us. Grant that we might unite the hearing of your word with faith today, that it might be profitable in our lives. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they'd seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And then just a couple of verses from the book of Exodus. And just listen. This is from chapter 24. And then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Please take your seats. Uh, 
a sustaining vision. He'd sold cigars in the family uh, business for six years before he entered broadcasting. In 1927, William Paley was behind a game that he intended uh, to win. When he founded the Columbia Broadcast uh, System, which at that time was a, a radio uh, system, he was competing with David Sarnoff, who founded NBC. Sarnoff was a leg up on Paley, both technologically and in terms of uh, finances. Um, in getting uh, his broadcasting system started. Now, Paley bought an office in Manhattan, and he could sit at his tiny desk with almost a bankrupt company losing $20,000 every week, and he could see not just his desk, but the millions of Americans out in the hinterland, many of which yet did not have electricity. He would envision an audience when there wasn't one. And he not only had vision, but he had the drive and the know-how to reach his dream. By 1948, his upstart network uh, was a raging success, surpassing even his rival NBC. That was the fruit of a sustaining vision. If we're going to follow Christ effectively, if we are going uh, to serve in a significant and meaningful way in our generation, we must have a sustaining vision. A vision that will carry us uh, through the dark times, the times of discouragement, the times of difficulty, perhaps even times when we feel disillusioned. Jesus calls his disciples up uh, onto a mountain to give them just such a vision. It is a vision of the glory of Jesus Christ. Now Jesus leads his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, to the heights of Mount uh, Hermon. Mount Hermon was the mountain in Palestine. It uh, rose to some 9,000 feet above uh, sea level, 11,000 feet above uh, the Jordan Valley. And on a clear day, you could see it either from Jerusalem or Tyre. It was snow-clad. It was a stunning backdrop for what was about to take place there. When Jesus was transfigured before their eyes, his clothes became an unnatural and unearthly white. The word that Mark uses here to describe it is the word that describes the color of lightning in the Greek language. And both Matthew and Luke tell us that Jesus' face shone. May very well be that we should understand that the person of Jesus, uh, his body radiated this intense uh, light through his uh, clothing. And there too, the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, Elijah and Moses, are also standing. They're talking to Jesus. A cloud covers uh, these uh, three. And then the voice of the Father speaks and then it's all gone in an instant. Does it matter? And if so, what does it mean? 
Well, in Mark's uh, gospel, one of the things that he does is he shows us that at the most important moments of revelation, there are the least number of people uh, present. There are three women at the empty tomb, and there are only three men on the mountain that behold the transfiguration of Jesus. Now, Mark's left us more clues about how important this is, and one of them is the mention of the exact time. It's six days after uh, Jesus posed the questions to his followers, after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. And this takes us right back to Mark verse 1, where Jesus says to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. But six days also, it recalls these days of preparation for Moses when God appeared to him on Mount Sinai to give him the Ten Commandments and the instructions about the tabernacle. For a Jew, there is no higher uh, moment in the whole history of God's uh, dealing with humanity. And there are numerous parallels uh, between God's meeting with Moses on Sinai and God coming to Mount Hermon and speaking to the disciples. Here's just a few. Jesus takes three named disciples up to the mountain, and Moses also takes three named people with him. Jesus is transfigured. His clothes become radiant. His face shines like the sun while Moses' skin shines when he comes down after talking to God. In both, God appears in an overshadowing uh, cloud. In both, uh, a voice speaks from the cloud. And James and John and Peter later will see these connections. They will realize uh, the extraordinary significance of these events. Just why are these two prophets, Moses and Elijah, there? Well, for the Jewish people of Jesus' day, Elijah and Moses were figures associated with the coming Messianic age. In fact, in latter Jewish tradition, uh, Moses, when he goes up on the mountain, is understood to being that he's being enthroned there. Uh, for the later Jews, Moses wasn't just a prophet, he was a king. And twice as Peter reflects on this event, the thought of uh, majesty, of a king's majesty has come out. He writes, we are eyewitnesses of Jesus' majesty, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when he declared him, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Jesus had promised that some who were there living or hearing his voice would see uh, the kingdom of God as it's come to power. And in fact, this is one expression of the completion of that uh, promise. Jesus, the Messiah King, his glory is being made visible uh, before his followers. His divine nature is shining through, radiating out with the glory as bright as the sun. It's this Jesus who they uh, have been walking with 
through uh, Nazareth. Uh, the Jesus who uh, eats lunch with these uh, men, who gets tired and thirsty. This Jesus who will be rejected. He is God's Son. But it's not now that Peter understands this. In fact, uh, Peter, along with James and John, don't have a clue as to what they should say or how to behave in this moment. They are frightened, as almost everybody who encounters God in this way is in Scripture. But Peter is a very practical man, and he's going to make the best of this situation. And so uh, he immediately shares his unfiltered thoughts. Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let me make some tents for, for you and for Elijah and Moses. Peter is putting them all on the same uh, plane. He doesn't understand Jesus' uniqueness. And as if it's a rebuke, God the Father speaks out of the cloud This is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Let me just say as an aside, these words are words that we hear in the gospel at the beginning, at Jesus' baptism. But at Jesus' baptism, they're spoken to Jesus to affirm his identity. And now they're being directed to the disciples. You see, Peter just hasn't understood what he confessed. He just hasn't understood the fullness of it. It's as if he forgot uh, what had happened six days uh, before. And something like this happens to us, doesn't it? Uh, We confess these things. In fact, we confess clearly that Jesus is the uh, Son of God. Uh, But, you know, it's not alive to us. You know, we haven't been up on the mountain. We haven't seen this. It's just not alive uh, to us. And and some of the ways that this manifests itself is, well, we just trudge through the routine and normalness of uh, life. And the steady routine just uh, creates a drum in our lives and our zeal for Christ flags. In fact, we often end up just drifting uh, spiritually like a, like a boat that's unmoored. Uh, or the cares and distractions of life crowd our hearts and minds in such a way that we don't seek after God. We, we don't uh, pray. Or when people are unresponsive, cold and apathetic uh, toward our efforts to love them, uh, we just think, what's the use? Have you forgotten whom you're serving? Is your confession, is it, has, it, has it lost uh, its uh, power over you? Has it just become unreal? It's just an abstraction uh, for you. We need this sustaining vision of the glory of Jesus Christ if we are going to be spiritually passionate people. We need this vision to be spiritually uh, passionate. And so it's recorded in three of the four Gospels uh, for us. We need to be familiar with it. We need to think about it often. Now, the vision of the transformation of Jesus takes place as he's on the way to the cross. 
In fact, uh, that's uh, the hinge point here as we've gone from chapter 8 to chapter 9. Everything from chapter 9 on is Jesus marching steadily uh, to Jerusalem, steadily uh, toward uh, the cross. And Mark wants us to see that the cross and the glory of Jesus are inseparable. Six days earlier, uh, Jesus had told his disciples that he would be rejected and put to death. And on the way down the mountain, he reminds them of this. He says, don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Now, the transfiguration is an essential sustaining vision for every disciple because it's a vision that reveals that glory comes after suffering. It's a vision that shows us that glory comes after suffering. You see, the transfiguration is a preview of the glory of Jesus, the coming glory that's been manifest in the resurrection, in the ascension, and in his enthronement, and in the full revelation of his glory when he returns a second time. The cloud on the mountain is the visible expression of the invisible glory of God. It's the same cloud that brought Israel up out of Egypt and led it through the wilderness. It's the cloud that descends on uh, the tabernacle when it's completed. It's the glory cloud that fills uh, the temple when it's dedicated. And it is on this same cloud that Jesus will return to earth. The transfiguration is a pledge to us that he will come again in glory. And what's more is that Mark is preparing us to see the hidden glory in the shame of the cross. He's preparing us to see the paradox of the glory that is there in the cross. Now, Jesus and Peter and John and James, they're having this conversation going down uh, the mountain, and they are puzzled. They cannot put this together. They not just don't like the idea somehow when Jesus talks about being rejected and dying, because to be resurrected, you have to die first, right? They did understand that much. Um, and it just doesn't fit for them. Now, they, like, well, all... Uh, believing Jews in their day, believed there would be a general resurrection of the dead at the end of human history. They were completely confident uh, that would uh, happen. And they cannot figure out how Jesus, who's the Messiah, could be resurrected apart from that general resurrection. In fact, it just doesn't square up with all the things they've been taught in the synagogue about what the prophets are saying about what lies in the future for Israel. And so they ask this question. Why do the scribes, reflecting the teaching of the prophets, say Elijah must first come? Meaning before the end, before uh, the establishment of the final expression of God's uh, kingdom. And Jesus says, well, you're right. They're right. Elijah uh, does come. 
he asks a counter uh, question, and then he surprises them uh, by saying, Elijah has come, and he means John the Baptist. Elijah has come in the person of John the Baptist. You see, like Elijah, John the Baptist came uh, to the people of Israel, not simply dressing and eating the same diet uh, that John uh, did, locusts and, and honey. You can try that when you get at home and see how it is. <laughs> but he came in the spirit and power of Elijah to bring God's people to a place of repentance. And as Elijah confronted a wicked king and his wife, so John does as well. Elijah is a man with a bounty on his head, but he escapes Jezebel's grasp. But John does not. He's imprisoned and beheaded. You see, what Jesus is saying is, is that John has lived out the pattern of Elijah's life. He has suffered. And Jesus' question to them gets at the heart of the matter. What can the death and resurrection have to do with the Son of Man, of Jesus? And, and they really don't understand. The disciples need to see Jesus' glory. They need to see and experience his majesty on the mountain as he moves to the cross, as he is rejected by uh, the leaders, as he is crucified by the Romans. God the Father here in speaking affirms that Jesus is more than human. He is the divine Son of Man, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. And it is the Son of Man who must suffer and die before his glory will be manifest. And you and I need this sustaining vision because the very pattern of Jesus' life is the pattern of ours. It is the pattern of first suffering and then glory. This is how you make sense of what you experience in this life as a Christian. In fact, and this is free, it's not even in my notes. John Calvin published a little book that's buried in the Institutes called The Little Golden Book of the Christian Life. And in it, uh, what he does is he shows uh, from the New Testament that the pattern of Christ's life, of suffering and humiliation, are also the pattern of the life of the Christian. And then uh, there is uh, glory and exaltation. But he adds this insight, which is that in the course of our lives, we have moments of not just suffering, but we also have moments when we rise out of the suffering and have a taste of glory, a taste of exaltation. But we don't stay there. We come back down uh, into the valley of suffering. This is the pattern of the Christian life. And we need this vision of what happened on the mountain to sustain us. Are you willing to wait for glory? Many people in the church today, I hope it's none of you, but many people in the church today are like a little child that simply cannot wait. They remember only the parts of Scripture that speak of wealth and the promise of happiness and of God's uh, goodness and glory. And they're deaf 
to the call of discipleship, a call for self-sacrifice, of suffering and bearing one's cross. You see, they want to skip from the freshman level course, the 101, right there to the graduate course, Suffering 101, Glory 999. They just want to go right to Glory 999 without the prerequisite. And Mark is teaching us that Jesus the Messiah must carry a cross, embrace humility and shame, and renounce earthly power. And that the disciples must do these things too. See, Mark is going to show us from now to the cross that what the disciples want is glory. They want to share his uh, power over the demons. They want to be great. They want to control others. They want to be rewarded. And they want the most prestigious possible places of honor in Jesus' kingdom. And, well, if we were honest, we want some of that too. You see, we're tempted by our own desire for a life of leisure, of pleasure, of ease. We want others to serve us in ways small and great. In fact, today's often one of the very few days that the mothers are served by their families instead of being the other way around. And we are tempted by earthly power. We are tempted to try to bring uh, God's rule, God's kingdom into place uh, by the use of worldly power instead of recognizing that the kingdom of God now is in fact a place of suffering and not yet a place of glory. When Jesus returns and only when he returns visibly and bodily will his glorious kingdom be manifest and visible and expressed in all its totality. It's true and it's so important for you to realize this and this is part of what Jesus is getting at in this seemingly uh, strange and, and dark statement at the very beginning of chapter 9 about his kingdom. The kingdom of God has broken into human history because the king is here. That's how Jesus begins his ministry. The kingdom of God is near. Why is it near? Well, because the king is there. He doesn't say it that way because the picture of the people of that time is someone who's actually going to ascend to a throne, who's going to throw out the Roman oppressors, who's going to exalt Israel above all of the nations. And he's not playing into that at all. That's one of the reasons why only three people are up there on the mountain. Because otherwise, well, they would want to take Jesus captive to that agenda. The consummation is not yet. And like them, we must follow Jesus in humility and weakness and suffering. Friends, the very same powers that killed John and crucified Jesus are still at work in the world today. They can still inflict great suffering on us, on the people of God, and on the church. We live in difficult times, and we shouldn't be surprised that we are not being invited uh, to the table of decision-making in our culture, uh, that instead uh, we are slandered 
We are misunderstood. In fact, uh, we are despised and hated. We shouldn't be at all surprised that we are marginalized. And we should not think that it's our calling to muscle our way up uh, to the, the table of leadership in society and take our place there. No, we shouldn't expect honor but dishonor, not strength and power, but weakness and humility. The transfiguration is the sustaining vision of what we need to grow as individuals. It's the vision that sustains and fuels our pursuit of personal transformation. I'm not going to read these passages from 2 Peter, but when 2 Peter recounts his experience of the transfiguration, he does it in the context of calling Christians to pursue Christ's likeness. He opens chapter 1 reminding them that God has provided everything necessary for them to be restored to the image of God. And then he calls uh, them to grow. And he says, uh, uh, grow in goodness, and to your goodness add knowledge, and to your knowledge add self-control, and to self-control add perseverance and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness and love. And then he says that our making an eternal difference, our spiritual usefulness, our spiritual effectiveness in God's kingdom depends on our growth. And the transfiguration in the transformation of Jesus shows us not just the glory of Jesus, but the glory that we will share as we're made into his likeness. Peter underscores, this is not a fantasy. This is part of the antidote to the cynicism and skepticism, not only out there, but in us. This glimpse of glory, this vision of glory fuels our growth. It shows us where we're going. It's our destiny. It's who we are becoming. And it answers something very deep within us. The disciples don't understand what kind of king Jesus is. He will win by losing. He will give away power. He will suffer and not immediately enter his glory. Friends, there's a lot about following Jesus that's perplexing. And if you haven't had this experience yet, you will. You'll be just like these men coming down the mountain with Jesus, and you'll be scratching your head, saying, what's up with that? Why is it this way? And the last beautiful thing to see here is that Jesus doesn't abandon them in their puzzlement. He stays right with them as he does with us. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, may you be pleased to burn into our hearts and minds this vision. Though we have not stood on this mountain, we now by faith see Jesus Christ in the heavens, sitting at your right hand on the throne, bringing all things into captivity and into submission to him. Oh, we long for that day. We long for that in ourselves as well as our land 
and all the globe. For we pray in Christ's name.